podcast. We're a pioneer church based in Loughborough in the UK. Our mission is to make disciples to establish heaven on earth. We're looking at James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. It would be great if you could get your Bibles out. There's a few Open Heaven Bibles lying around, I can see. So if you haven't brought one with you, then grab one of the the black ones around. Or, of course, get it up on your phone. And we have got a slide. Oh, there we have got a slide. So uh, we're going to read this out together. And then I want us to go straight into a little video um, of a friend of mine. Some of you will know him, Simon Gilbo. Um, And he's done a brilliant... Well, he hasn't written it. He's read out a brilliant poem that um, is a a great example of um, this passage. So let's have a little read of what it says. This is James chapter 5. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, As an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven, nor by earth, nor by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. So I'd just like us to watch now a video of Simon Gilbo talking about not quitting. Quit, give up, you're beaten, they shout at me and plead. There's just too much against you now, this time you can't succeed. And as I start to hang my head in front of failure's face, my downward fall is broken by the memory of a race. And hope refills my weakened will as I recall that scene, for just the thought of that short race rejuvenates my being. A children's race, young boys, young men, how I remember well. Excitement, sure, but also fear, it wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up so full of hope, each thought to win that race, or tie for first, or if not that, at least take second place. And fathers watch from up the side, each cheering for his son, And each boy hoped to show his dad that he would be the one. The whistle blew and off they flew, young hearts and hopes of fire. To win and be the hero there was each young boy's desire. And one boy in particular, whose dad was in the crowd, was running near the lead and thought, my dad would be so proud. But as they speeded down the field across a shallow dip, that little boy who thought to win lost his step and slipped. Trying hard to catch himself, his arms flew every place. Amid the laughter of the crowd, he fell flat on his face. So down he fell. And with him hope, he couldn't win it now. Embarrassed, sad, he only wished to disappear somehow. But as he fell, his dad stood up and showed his anxious face, which to the boy so clearly said, get up and win the race. 
He quickly rose, no damage done behind a bit, that's all, and ran with all his mind and might to make up for his fall. So anxious to restore himself, to catch up and to win, his mind went fast on his legs, he slipped and fell again. Oh, he wished then he had quit before with only one disgrace. I'm hopeless as a runner now, I shouldn't try to race. But mid the laughing crowd he searched and found his father's face, that steady look steady and get up and win the race. So up he jumped to run once more, 10 yards behind the last. If I'm to gain these yards, he thought, I've got to move real fast. So exerting everything he had, he regained eight and 10, trying so hard to catch the lead, slipped and fell again. Ah, oh, defeat. He lay there silently, a tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense running anymore. Three strikes, I'm out, why try? I've lost. So what's the use, he thought, I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, whom soon he'd have to face. Get up. An echo sounded like, get up take your place. You were not made for failure. Get up and win the race. With borrowed will, get up. It said, you have not lost at all, for winning is no more than this to rise each time you fall. So up he jumped to run once more. And with a new commit, he resolved that win or lose, at least he wouldn't quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been, still he gave it all he had and ran as though to win. Three times he'd fallen stumbling, three times he rose again. And he ran with all his mind and might and right until the end, and you know, they cheered the winning run, runner when he crossed the line first place, head high and proud and happy, no falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line last place, the crowd gave him the greater cheer for finishing his race. And even though he came in last with head bowed low, unproud, you would have thought he'd won the race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do so well. To me, you won. now, when things seem hard and dark and difficult to face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my own race. For all of life is like that race with ups and downs, and all, all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Quit. Give up. You're beaten. They still shout in my face. But another voice within me says, get up and win the race. And you know what? That hits me hard because I've fallen three times, 33 times, 333 times, and it's so tempting just to stay down and give up. But may you, may I, and I do, still hang on in there, still plodding on, may we just listen to that voice. Get up. An echo sounded, get up and take your place. You were not made for failure. Get up and win the race with Borrow Lord. Get up, it said, you have not lost at all, for winning is the morning to rise each time you fall. And today and tomorrow, next week, you will hear, quit, give up, you're beaten. They'll shout in your face. But another voice will say, get up and win the race. Whatever you're going through, God says to you, I believe in you, that you've got what it takes to be who I've called you to be. Get up. I could just sit down now, couldn't I? <laughs> I just, I just um, love that, partly because um, Cy Gilbo was at university at Loughborough with me and uh, Rich, and he is a, an example, someone who spent 20 years in Burundi um, and has been a faithful, faith-filled follower of Jesus um, and has seen great suffering in doing that, but has been formed into a mighty man of God. You know, when I was in my 20s, um, in the early days of Open Heaven, I wrote a talk called Good Finishers, Brackets, Not Just Good Starters. 
And I read it um, in the last few days. And I wrote it because of two things. One was a quote that I heard back then that had just come from a leader in the Chinese church who had been in prison for 22 years. And he said this of the Western church, many of them are good starters, but not many are good finishers. And that really impacted me when I was in my 20s. And then the other was an observation that some people further ahead of me were quitting faith when times got tough. And I can remember having a deep conviction in my 20s. It was, it was a, it was a, like a, a deep resolve that got formed in that part of my Christian life, which was no matter what happened in my time on earth, I wanted to finish the race well. It's partly why I wrote that talk. It was actually one of the finalist commissioning gatherings. Um, 1 Corinthians 9, we know it well, don't we? Run in such a way as to get the prize. And I wanted to live with the end in mind. I wanted to live with the well done, good and faithful servant. I wanted to be a good finisher and not quit. And it's still my goal. It's been tested and sometimes feel I'm running now with a limp. And I look around this room, sorry, and I just feel like I see so many people who haven't quit. And they could have quit. You know, so many people where when life is really tough, they could have just exited out the back door. I'm not going to name names because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But heaven knows. And one of the things actually I want us to do um, towards the end of the gathering before we go out of the door is I want you to say well done to the people around you who you know could have quit and they haven't done. And they're here they're still standing, and they're still worshipping Jesus. And um, I think that there's a number of things that not quitting requires. One is obviously tenacity, that sense of resolve, that sense of deep commitment, that sense of no matter what, you know, I am going to I'm going to I'm going to run this race in such a way as to get the prize. Number two is having a right view of ourselves and a right view of God. In, you know, 30 years of ministry, I've seen so many issues come down to having a wrong view of ourselves or a wrong view of God. So those two things are so important to, to, to just go after. Know who you are in Christ. Know your identity and know who God is as your father. Like, know it. Know it deep in your knower. <laughs> like, go deep in that stuff. Write out the scriptures. You know, tr- let your mind be transformed by the truth of who you are and who God is. And the third thing that I really think helps us to not quit is have a long-term view of the future that is rooted in biblical truth. 
something about having the long perspective that is really helpful in the present moment. So this passage has got some golden keys in it to finish well and never quit. I wonder if we could have the slide back up again. So I'm just going to go through and pull out a few of these things. So it starts off this passage saying, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. You know, the early church lived with a heightened expectation that Jesus was about to come back. I mean, like literally within their lifetime, you know, within a matter of years that Jesus was coming back. And there were obviously signs of impatience and perhaps even frustration that were being exhibited in the early church because James has to counter those attitudes by saying, friends be patient. He wouldn't have to say be patient if everyone was being patient. He's saying be patient because there must have been some real angst. Jesus, how long is it before you're coming back? I know sometimes I too share that same sense of angst. And so James is just saying be patient, wait, trust, and just as a farmer knows the right time for harvest, God knows the right time for Jesus to return. And as I've just been, obviously, been sitting in this passage, mulling it over, I've just been really struck by the thought that I think we are perhaps in the very opposite place to the early church. Whereas they were in this state of agitation, perhaps excitement, angst, impatience, frustration. Jesus, when are you coming back? When are you going to put everything right again? I wonder if the pendulum has swung to the point where right now, rather than a heightened expectation, I wonder if there's very little or perhaps even no expectation that Jesus is returning. Deep down, do we believe it will actually ever happen? And that's worth just thinking it through, maybe just even now, just pause Do you actually believe there will be a calendar day when Jesus will come back? Because he will. (laughs) I, I believe what the Bible says. The Lord is coming back. Sometimes I wonder if we're more influenced and discipled by Netflix than by Scripture because there's all these end-of-the-world films and whether we think it's AI that's going to take over, a global war, a meteorite. The Bible says that this age will end because Jesus comes back and puts all things right. And when Jesus comes, it will be as the king of the cosmos. And everybody will know it. Jesus himself says it will be like lightning striking from the east to the west. He himself says the son of man will come back in glory and power and everybody will know. And it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus also says this, 
But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And then he says, again, this is Matthew 24, verse 44, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And so I've just wondered, perhaps the fact the early church were expecting him means by definition that it was unlikely to happen because Jesus says it's going to happen when no one's expecting it. The timing of when Jesus returns is perhaps when so much time has passed, it's almost gone off our radar as an actual possibility. And it can feel challenging to say in today's culture that I do believe in the second coming of Christ. I really do. I believe that he is coming and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. A day will come when all will be made well. All loss will be restored, grief will be upended, and sorrow will be overthrown. And as, as my Rich said last week, we only have two days guaranteed, this day and that day. This day today and that day, the return of Jesus. And we don't know when it will be, because Scripture clearly says that. But we do know it's going to happen. And it's not our responsibility to predict exact timings, but it is our responsibility to attend to our hearts and attend to our lives to be ready. And every generation needs to live ready. You know, many prophetic voices around the country are saying similar things about the times that we're in and that we're coming into, which is around more turbulence. I know we don't want to hear this, but I do think there's truth in it. More turbulence, more shaking, but at the same time, another awakening. And we don't need to be worried about it. God's going to give us everything that we need. But we do need an unshakable faith and that resolve that the Bible tells us about, that that poem tells us about, that we see outworked in this community. We need an unshakable resolve to not quit when the going gets tough. And I do think it's interesting, Richard referred to the Prince of Peace. I think there's going to be an aspect of the, the gospel the good news of the kingdom of God, particularly around peace, that's going to be really important for us in the coming years. And actually a really important um, part of our um, conversation with people who don't yet know Jesus. It's not right that peace is seen to be the domain just of the Buddhists, that the prince of peace is the one who gives us peace that goes beyond understanding. Shalom. That when everything is shaking around us, we're not shaken. That the world can be falling apart, but we're not. There's something about peace. And I know um, it's something that can feel at odds with our culture, which is obviously one of heightened anxiety. But I just want to say that there's, there's some treasure, there's some depth, there's some richness for us to mine around peace. So, James says, See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, 
patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains, because in that part of the world there were early rains in October, which, in which the seed germinated. There were later rains in April that caused the grain to swell and mature. And so there was patience in the waiting because of the harvest needing to be ready. And I don't know who am I to know, but you, I, sometimes Rich and I talk, is there something about God is waiting for the harvest to be ready? A last great awakening before that final invasion of earth by heaven and Jesus returning. So we're told to be patient and stand firm. And then verse 9 says, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door, another door. We've been talking about doors a lot with the prophetic word over open heaven of open doors. And so as we wait and trust, we keep our hearts right. So we be careful what we say and what we sow because there are consequences. You know, grumbling and negative commentary can become a culture in an individual or a household or even a church community. And that's not how we want to live. And it, it clearly says that God is our judge. Again, a bit like the second, second coming of Christ. God being our judge is not talked about a whole lot. That feels really like, you know, we don't talk about that stuff anymore. I think it's really important as Christians that we know that in terms of God being our judge, it's never about our salvation. It's always about our reward. Our salvation is secure The question is, how can we delight him by having something of eternal value to lay at his feet? Some of you might be familiar with the verses in 1 Corinthians 3. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives... The builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will still be saved. So it's about reward. And that, I don't know about you, but that, it motivates me in terms of what can I, what can I bring that, that so delights Jesus that there's something of, you know, we don't know what the rewards are. I think about the treasures in heaven might be the stories of the people whose lives we've touched on earth and we get to hear the end part of the story. That might be part of our treasures in heaven. It's so easy. We know how easy it is in our culture to accumulate stuff, but at the end of the day, it all goes back in the box. What's of eternal value is people, precious, irreplaceable people. I'm... I'm um, buzzing at the moment about the thought of running Alpha again. Next term, it'll be three years since we've run a, a, a big Alpha. Because, because my deepest conviction is people are the most important thing we can ever invest our life and our time into. I do believe there's a harvest coming, and I want to play a part in that. And then moving on to verse 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. We're told to be patient in the face of suffering and look to the example of the prophetic voices in the past. And as we look back on the prophets in the Bible, so much of their message came from the suffering that they encountered in their lives. 
Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet with all the rejection he encountered and his heart was broken as he kept calling unfaithful people back to God. Daniel was deported and we know some of the trials that he was put under with lions and various things. Hosea's marriage broke down and he had to speak about God being a husband to an unfaithful bride. Job had everything stripped away and then restored. And yet they continued to speak in the name of the Lord. And it was like because of their tenacity and not quitting, they had such power in the prophetic message that they were bringing to God's people. And we know, don't we, that deep intimacy with Jesus often comes from deep places, often places of suffering. And there is treasure in the darkness that can only be gained in the valleys. There's some spiritual authority that's only gained by the prayers prayed in darkness. And, you know, you you guys have walked the journey of our lives and... um, I've been acutely aware that there's prayers that I've prayed on certain days and in certain moments that have been some of the most important prayers of my life. Knowing that spiritual authority is gained when the enemy is taunting you to quit. And again, that deep down resolve still quietly whispers amongst all of the questions, still, I will worship you, God. And that's... That's, I guess, what I want to to try and kind of impart into you, to make some decisions now that when the days come, when there is a knock at the door with news you didn't want, when there's a phone call with news you didn't want, when you're standing at the graveside of someone that you love, still, in the depth of your spirit, there's a quiet voice that says, still, God, I worship you, still. I worship you. And so it might be even now, you just make that decision to God. Like, God, whatever comes, whatever comes, that, I want that. Even if I don't feel I'm quite in that place yet, or I'm not sure when that testing comes, what my response will be, at least a kind of a, God, I want to say that. Would you help me? You know, it's a bit like the prayer, God, you know, I want to believe, help me in my unbelief. You know, God, I I want to never quit. Help me now have that inner resolve and depth that means when those moments come, I will still quietly say, still, I worship you, God. You know, pain is not the enemy. It's just pain. The worst thing is wasted pain. Because if we're scared about pain, we're never going to be able to walk through life with that sense of confidence of I might be devastated, but I will not be destroyed. Pain is not the enemy. If we see pain as the enemy, we'll pain push, we'll blame shift, we'll sit on the pity pot. But if we, if we, you know, pain's not the enemy. The enemy's the enemy. And yet, the, you know, when we are in Christ, we are protected. Our hidden life in Christ, our eternal life in Christ is protected. Nothing can touch that. We can be devastated, but we will not be destroyed. 
And so that's a deep resolve we need to hold on to. The suffering prophets questioned, but they didn't quit. They suffered, but they remained steadfast. And one of the things, bear with me in this, but one of the things I saw in Lauren was she was never defined by or defeated by her suffering. That was really amazing to watch, like really incredibly amazing to watch. She never talked to somebody who was, who was suffering. There's a piece of work that she had to do. We showed a slide of it at the Thanksgiving service, and she had to write, it was about identity. And she did it with her name in the middle and then like a rose with all these petals of all these things that made up her identity. And it was, it was wonderful, you know. It was, you know, dog lover, Christian, good style, creative, nurturing, loving, you know, it's all these different things. But I just thought about the other day, at that time when she did that piece of work, she had had a brain tumor removed, and she, at that time, was jointly going through radiotherapy and chemotherapy. And it just, was, it just struck me. On that whole piece of work, there was nothing about ill, poorly, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, cancer, brain tumor, nothing. I thought, wow, that's because her identity was, was, was so deeply rooted as a child of God, a daughter of the King of Kings. She knew who she was, whose she was. Her present was secure. You know, her future was secure. Her present was secure. It's like she just felt secure in who she was. And I just thought, that's amazing, isn't it? So our primary identity is as a child of God. What happens to us, we can't control but what happens in us, we can. And then a really important part of verse 11, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. You've heard me say this before. I said this before we went through what we went through with Lauren, and I'll keep on saying it because I need to keep on speaking it to me as well as to everybody else. We must not let our pain shape our image of God. We must let our image of God shape our pain. And our image of God is that he is full of compassion and mercy. And it's that conviction that allows for deep trust to be exercised when our human intellect cries out, this doesn't make any sense. Because, because, because trust, childlike trust, is deeper and stronger than our human intellect. And so there's, there's so many times why I have to lay down this part of me that wants to try and fathom it all out and go, I submit this part of me to my spirit, which is the deepest part of me that says, my God is full of compassion and mercy. And so faith at times is redefined as walking through the middle of pain and not turning our face away from the Father. And then verse 12, just coming into that last bit, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. So this is talking about a, a culture that was way back then, where um, in order to say that I am being honest about this, people would swear in the name of the Lord. Um, so it's not talking as, as we would um, perhaps initially interpret that as swearing, as in effing and blinding, but I really don't think that's a good thing. As, uh, as 
As people of God, you know, we're told, aren't we, kind of, you know, let our speech be gracious and seasoned with salt and to, uh, to think about everything that is lovely and pure and noble and excellent and trustworthy, all that stuff. So, but this is a particular practice. And all, really what it's saying is that when we're all in, when we've got this deep resolve, when we're not going to quit no matter what happens, we are wholehearted and there's a consistency of our truth-telling. We want to be people where we don't have to make oaths and swear on, you know, different things because people just know because their experience of us is that when we speak, we tell the truth. So we're not having to make up a whole load of other stuff. So I just want to um, finish this talk by, it's another poem, um, reading out a poem that was found in the room of a young adult in Rwanda in 1980. This was something that he wrote. It was found on his desk. And the following day, he was given a choice to renounce his faith or to be killed. And he chose Christ. And then obviously saw him face to face. And I, um, again, this was quite a formative poem when I was in my 20s. And I just feel it really fits uh, for this whole thing about not quitting. So this is what he wrote a young adult. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees. That's the opposite to old camel knees, isn't it? Remember James, because he was a prayer, had calluses on his knees. I'm done with smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, or popularity. I don't have to be right first recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith. I lean on his presence. I walk by patience. I am uplifted by prayer, and I labor by power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way rough. My companions few. My guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go until he comes, give until I drop, preach till all I know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me because my banner will be clear. So, friends, don't quit. <laughs> Stay facing towards God in all that goes on in life. And know that he is coming. For, he's coming back. I know I'm in a different place because of what's happened to us, but I long for that day. I really long for that day.
So make some, make some deep decisions that whatever life throws at you, you will not quit. You'll stay the course. You'll run the race in such a way as to get the prize. And we need to take as many people with us. <laughs> you know, we really do. That's the, that, that's, we've got to have that eternal perspective. So I wonder whether we could have another worship song. Sorry, I've just kind of landed that on you. But there's something, isn't there, where we need to go back again into lifting our eyes to Jesus. The one who may be, may be an actual calendar day in our lifetime, maybe will come back. New heavens, new earth. Make everything right. Make everything new. So we're going to worship Jesus. We started worshiping Jesus. We're going to finish worshiping Jesus. But just take this moment that if there are people in our community where you just want to say to them, thank you for not quitting. Thank you for holding on. Keeping going. And maybe just pray God's blessing on them in that. Then um, use this last worship song as an opportunity to do that.